Hi family, it's me, Nikki. Some of y'all might know me as Venus Roots, but it's me. And before we get into today's show, I wanted to make a support request of you all. A goal I set out for myself this year was to reach 300 patrons by the end of the year. And we are super close. So I want to make the ask of y'all. If you love the show and you want to support independent media like this and you love tuning into the episodes and discussing it with friends or a partner, it's a great time to become a patron. All you got to do is patreon.com slash venusroots. And I'm so humbled and grateful that this little podcast that comes out of my bedroom is listened to by thousands of folks across the world in so many different countries. And I don't take that for granted. I appreciate y'all so, so much. All right, let's get into it. Hey y'all, you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots. And as we are out of the electoral madness, partially, I'm also inviting the idea of slowing down, taking more time to be unproductive, whatever that may mean, of centering care and centering our resilience and embodying that in a real way. And I'm really grateful for today's guest because I think her work and her latest book, really push us onto considering what does it mean to do nothing. Today's guest is Jenny Odell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> um, Jenny, I think, you know, ironically, your book is very much so around resisting commodification, around developing an awareness of the environments around us, not just humans, but really the living ecosystems around us. But somehow in the midst of that, your book is also very, very popular. (laughs) It has reached all types of people. Um, You know, before we get into all of that, I am curious sort of what are the anchoring values that you want to really center in your work um, that might not be, you know, so easily perceived by someone who might just see the cover? Yeah, um... I think if there's like something I'm trying to do a lot of the time, it's like complicating things, um, Mm -hmm. which is like the opposite of oftentimes like a how-to book promises to simplify things like into a series of steps, for example. Um, And I, on the other hand, am someone who really loves getting um, historical context or other kinds of contexts. I've also always been interdisciplinary. So I'm, you know, my background is also as an artist um, who has been teaching art to non-art majors um, at a school that very much privileges like the sciences and technology. So I I have this sort of experience of like stubbornly standing in this in-between space where, you know, and I myself, I think just like the background of like being biracial, it's like I have this affinity towards like Mm -hmm. in-betweenness. And so um, like, I think like the resist, like in the title of the book is like a lot of that resisting is like resisting this collapsing into um, like snap judgments, um, easy answers, um, kind of like caricatures of historical movements, um, or, you know, like this idea of like a kind of shallow, um, form of advice that kind of only plays out on one 
two-dimensional plane and doesn't sort of question any of the forces that like gave rise to something like the attention economy that is keeping you glued to your phone. So like really just trying to um, insist on complexity without like totally losing someone is the other thing, right? Like you also want to make it accessible. So I think that's what, that's the tightrope that I'm walking. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the key takeaways that I, I felt from the book was this idea of complication of nuance of contradictions of really challenging the idea that we're just these simple commodities to be either producing or producing if not labor but producing like profit advertisement data etc but rather like we're these really complex and strange beings with longings for all types of things be it care be it healing, be it uh, uh, validation, um, and all the other things in between. So that really resonates. I think there's a there's a one line in the book. I mean, there's so many lines that I was like, oof, I got read. But one specifically, how you phrase it is, it's mind blowing. It's this idea that when we post on social media, we almost treat it as if it's a, a stock in the stock market, and we're just obsessively per- watching its performance. Um, you know, I don't have too much experience in the stock market, but my understanding <laughs> of it <laughs> is it is that, right? It, and, and it's such a like specific attitude that we all sort of have towards how we present ourselves in social media and this idea of personal branding and how it performs and, and who does it um, sort of like gravitate for. And it's very strange, this idea of like, literally actively commodifying ourselves um, through this platform. Um, And I think with that, I'm curious how you are sort of navigating this idea of being a person that's invested in nuance and complicating themes and bringing in context that's typically void of the conversation and also having an extremely successful book that I'm sure you now get all types of emails and requests, requests like this to be on podcasts and all types of things. I mean, is it overwhelming? How are you, how are you navigating the contradiction? Uh, I mean, it definitely was a learning process and it's, it's a lot better now than it was last year. I got super overwhelmed. It was honestly kind of painful. Um, Mm -hmm. Just kind of, having to be like trying to figure out my relationship to this like image of me as like the maker of this thing. Um, Whereas like I, as an actual person am just like fluid, you know, like even the idea that we would stay the same, like moment to moment is like very strange to me. Um, So I always felt like I was getting like shoved back into this box and I was like trying to get out. Um, And I think over time I, I came to this sort of compromise of, there's a public self and there's a private self. And I, and I think we sort of think of that as being inauthentic. Mm. Um, Like you're supposed to fully be your authentic self all the time through all of these levels. Um, And I've kind of come to um, unlearn that and, you know, see that like you have to be protective of a lot of things like of your interiority. Um, I, you know, I don't share everything. I think there's a part of my life that is, will always be sort of invisible um, and like have knowing that that's there and having recourse to that has been like really helpful. Um, and, and I, so I think you can have that separation and still be, you know, like what we would call authentic. Um, 
I, I also have been reminding myself, like the experience of having to do, and this is mostly last year, um, the experience of having to say the same thing over and over again, for example, feels really alienating to you. But then I think about all the times like I've heard a single podcast with some author that I didn't know about and it's the first time I've heard it and it was amazing and I went and got their book and it really was like so great for me, right? So I have to like kind of put myself in that mindset. Like this is for, you know, someone who hasn't heard any of this. And and I think when you keep that in mind, it, it becomes a little bit less kind of like deadening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I haven't figured, to be honest, I have not figured out the social media thing. I can't figure out a way to post anything on any social media that doesn't feel like I'm commodifying some part of my being. And uh, I don't, I don't know if anyone's figured that out. Um, (laughs) Like, please tell me, but um, I honestly feel like you could write an algorithm that would post like a photo of the crows that I made friends with, like a photo of some book and then like maybe a photo of like some trees and just put it on a cycle And that would be like the Jenny Instagram algorithm. And then meanwhile, I can like go off and live my secret life that is like not connected to any of that. It's not a bad plan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's real. It's, you know, I was recently um, having a conversation on the podcast with a friend, Phil. He was the former senior advisor for Bernie. And we were just talking about how during the uprising there was such an overload of information and also just like a a commodification of little snippets and hot takes of oh this is what abolition is oh this is what we mean by defund the police oh this is what organizers are saying and you know our experiences like being grassroots organizers who've been doing this work was like it was this like sort of alienating. I mean, there's an exciting part where you're like, yes, I want people to be having this conversation. Like we've been wanting folks to engage in this space, but because it's done with such little intention and it was clear that it was being done for mass resharing on Twitter and, you know, graphics to be super duper shared on IG and whatever it might be. It didn't feel like there was like an authentic commitment to to actually the things that were even being said right abolition or organizers and uplifting certain folks and budget processes and all these things so yeah I I feel that I even had to sort of take a break because I was also caught in that it was the first time that I thought a lot of the ideas that the people around me that you know comrades have been working to sort of even just push a little bit, right? I mean, a place like Miami to talk about abolition is difficult. Um, but to see that kind of in a in a grand scale did feel exciting. And I think it was like intoxicating. I was like, yes. And, you know, I wanted to share my thoughts. And very, very quickly, I felt that the, the stock market performance <laughs> dynamic. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Like I've never had thousands and thousands of likes and hundreds of shares on my thing. Um, But recognizing that at that point, it's no longer about what is being said or my work or like what I intended to offer. But, you know, it it actually serves a lot of other purposes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's it's um, like the ideal thing would be for someone to be like scrolling through these graphics and then they see like a book title or something or someone's name and they go and like read the book or like watch a talk or something and like go on their own sort of journey. Like to me, that's Mm -hmm. like the ideal like middle ground. And I think instead of getting caught in that kind of like short loop or like themselves getting caught in like posting things just to get sort of recognition. Um, 
And I think that's kind of, you know, what I, part of what I was trying to do in the book is like, you know, it's a little bit like, I think this is annoying to some people. Like it's not about how to do nothing. Um, it has, a, it's an appealing title. Um, and I would argue it's, you know, it depends on what you, how you define nothing. Right. Um, depends on how you define productivity, like productive of what. Um, but I do, I think it, it probably doesn't work every time, but I think what my book was trying to do is, was like that. It's like, okay, you have a feeling that's bad. <laughs> um, or like you, you're stuck in this thing. Like, like I have a way out, but like the way out is like really long and complicated. But by the time that you're like going like that way, it's like, okay, well maybe you'll just like keep going in that direction. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, again, sort of like trying to strike that balance between like meeting people where they are um, and sort of in the attention economy that they're in and then trying to like coax out some more complexity nuance and then like hopefully resistance to that kind of like endless cycle, like super shallow cycle of information. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, well, you know, to, to that point, the conversation I was having with this person, I ended up naming the, the episode context over content. And I think like that's something kind of, I think we're, a lot of us are kind of trying to push more and more intentionally, um, knowing that these are ideas are becoming commodified, right? The idea of, of thinking something like abolition is becoming commodified. It's so American. It's so <laughs> typical of this political economy, but it is a little mind blowing to be like, wait, is that what's really happening? Um, so I really appreciate all the sort of offerings and little entry points you offer throughout the book. Um, cause there's so many, I think what's so exciting about the book is like, you take us everywhere. You know, there was a chapter I was, I was reading this book while I was on a, on like a nature vacation trip with friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And I was just like reading like excerpts. Right. So they would catch me like a chapter one and then chapter four. And it's like, wait, well, how did we get here? How are we talking about like, cult? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, trust me, it's all related. <laughs> um, and I also think something that's really interesting is it doesn't exist in this binary. I think sometimes even when I've mentioned the book, folks jump to an idea of digital minimalism, which, you know, I'm sure like, yes, we need to be more intentional. We probably shouldn't be spending 15 hours on the phone. But I didn't read this as like a how to manual on like how to become a digital minimalist or, you know, like it just didn't ring that way. Um, you're offering so many, so many different anecdotes all over the place from like philosophy to performance art to labor unions and how they organize. Um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I I think, you know, when I posted the the photo of the book, the first thing I said, I'm like, it's not a linear book. It's so hard to summarize. <laughs> it is so hard to summarize. And I, you know, if the if that was one of your intentions, I think you did it very successfully. So thank you. That was one of my intentions, um, which I think I didn't even realize when I was writing it. I think I think I was just kind of following my own, you know, it really, as I say in the in the introduction, it is like essay in the sense of the, the word essay, meaning like to essay forth. Like I, there's a starting point and an ending point that I wasn't necessarily sure of at the beginning. Like I'm sort of trying to take you with me as I'm trying to investigate this question. Um, and I just kind of pulled in things that helped me think through that sort of like tools for thinking. Um, which happened to be from all these different contexts. And then I think when I was done, I was like, oh, like this book sort of embodies that thing that I'm trying to argue for, which is like, 
Um, you know, obviously there's a lot about physical ecology, but I think I'm also trying to argue for like ecological models of thinking or ideas or even like selfhood, like the fact that you, um, your identity is this thing that sort of emerges at the intersection of many different things at different times. Um, and so do ideas, right? Like I think, you know, the one way to like counter the commodification of an idea or like ideas around abolition is to like sort of go the opposite way and show how, how related it is to all of these other things, right? Like other things that are contemporary with it, but also like the history and just, you know, like expand out from this point, right? Like it's sort of yeah. the, the opposite of the infographic, not to say like the infographic can be a starting point, but like kind of expanding out from there. Yeah. I love that. Cause I think that it, it's true, right? When we're talking about things like abolition and, or whether it's attention economy or abolition, it's like these things are seeped in our education system, our sort of workforce, sort of our, our gender dynamics, our relationship dynamics when, with one another, the media, our music, like how we consume art. I mean, it, it quite literally, you, you don't have to try to sort of make up. It's like, it's all there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's just like that noticing that you bring forth that that's really one of the gifts because um, I think we live in such a particular society that's interested in us not having the ability to connect the dots that are right in front of us sometimes. Yeah. And I will also say like, you know, to that point, I, I think what I am always like chasing, like personally as an experience, but also like the thing that I'm trying to write is like that feeling you get when someone points something out to you and then you start noticing it everywhere. Yes. It's not that they pointed out one thing to you and you saw it and that's the end. It's they pointed something out to you and your life is different after that because everywhere you go, you see that thing and it completely shifts everything, right? Like I kind of talk about that with birds, but that could happen with really anything. Um, and that's so different from how I think people want to, the sort of easy way of imagining a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Or is like, uh, the problem is over here and this is the fix and now it's gone. It's like, no, the problem is extremely deeply embedded in like everything and like the way you think and the way you think of yourself and how you relate to other people. Like it could not be more different. Um, and like, I think that can be really daunting um, and certainly takes more, more patience, but, um, and sometimes, you know, it, it means seeing the world as like a much darker place than you thought. But I, but it, for me, it's still like, I still appreciate that feeling because it feels like your your experience of the world is becoming more nuanced. It's becoming richer. It's becoming truer. Um, and and like I said, I think when when it really happens, it's like your whole life after that will always feel different. Like it's hard. It will be hard for you to remember a time when you didn't, you couldn't see those things. Yes, I mean, I think of I think of like. An example is like American imperialism. Once you see it, you're like, this shit is everywhere. This shit is in our rom-coms. This shit is in the bathing suits that people wear. Like it is so pervasive and you can sort of tease that out for any of these sort of foundational, conditional, oppressive forces of our society, which, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. But there is a liberating part of it, right? There is a liberating part of it that sort of like allows you to see what is. Um, sometimes I think of the idea like clarity doesn't bring you answers. Most of the time it brings you more questions, but I, I do want to choose that clarity over confusion. Um, you brought up birds. I'm sure <laughs> there has been 
you know, the idea of you being like a bird watcher, I'm sure people loved that. It was it was very, I'm sure, on people's mind, like, oh, Brad, oh, my God, I want to be a bird watcher. Like, I'm sure there was some of that. <laughs> you know, like, we just can't have anything nice. Um, but <laughs> but with all of that being said, um, something I loved um, and, and definitely want to get into is where I'm sitting right now, I'm overlooking two garden beds. Um, and I just got into gardening, like, for real this year in January not knowing it was going to be the year it was going to be. Um, but in just, you know, the year's not even over. So the idea that in just a couple months, you know, I've been living in this home for some time. I've just completely transformed my understanding of the living ecosystem in my home, in my yard, where I've been residing at. And it's to this point, like what you mentioned, right? It's like, I've even had a hard time differentiating like, hmm, I wonder if there's just like more monarch butterflies because I built like I brought in these pollinators. I wonder if they've always been here. I'm like, there's just like a bunch of bees. I wonder if it's because like I'm like, there's so many birds. I wonder, like, have they always been here? And I was just not paying attention. And, you know, to the, to this day, I'm, I just won't know. Um, but the noticing is so acute now where I think one of the beautiful things of, of getting, sort of trying to return to the land, right? Understanding that this is a very small attempt of just kind of returning. But now every single day I go out, I notice like spiders that make these elaborate webs that sustain like are dripped in rain and like can sustain and withstand Miami rains. We even had a storm this weekend. I think of like little birds like building um their nests you know with little twigs all across the bougainvilleas and i'm like how do they do that it's full of thorns you know they have it figured out i think of like bees pollinating my cucumber flowers like so many things that honestly eight months ago even if there were some of these creatures and beings here i just wouldn't have been able to tell you and this idea that you put it forward of like bioregionalism so curious around like how how are you sort of thinking about it now how would you break it down to folks um who might be curious what is this idea of bioregionalism why is it important yeah it's yeah so for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term I mean I think it's basically just describing like a familiarity with one's local ecosystem um I think taken to its extreme sort of like identification with an area um, I, I feel like it's a sort of, um, echo of like indigenous land practices or land ethics. And I, I often wish that things that are sort of, um, talked about in the bioregionalist, like, uh, whatever category would acknowledge that more. Um, cause mm-hmm. I don't think that always happens, but, um, you know, like knowing what watershed you live in or, uh, you know, native plants, um, native species, um, kind of movements through, like I live in the Pacific Flyway, so there's migratory birds. It's just sort of like um, getting your bearings in terms of like who and what lives around you um, or has lived around you. Um, And I sort of think of it as, I mean, it's important for me for a lot of reasons. I mean, one that's become very um, apparent to me during the pandemic is like, it's a form of community. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. that um, what a lot of folks feel like they're missing is a sense of community, even before the pandemic, right? Um, And uh, I've become very uh, 
you know, whatever. I, I get excited when I go somewhere new and I see like a new bird that just happened to me um, this past weekend. But but then like, I also want to get home and see like the California toeys that are totally on my sidewalk. Like I get like homesick um, for them. Um, and uh, and so, and you know, like I think that that can happen. It's the same way it would happen with people, right? I don't know. It's, it's even hard for me to draw a distinction. Um, and the week or weeks that um, we couldn't really go outside here in the Bay Area because of the fires, there was like that horrible ugh, orange day as I've been calling it. Um, that was really hard for me because I, I thought originally it was because I was like stuck inside, but that actually wasn't it. It was that I felt like the, during the pandemic, I've been isolated from like human friends, but I could still go outside and I see, I have like acquaintances um, in some, in some cases, quite a specific individual acquaintances like the crows. Um, and, and I was, and so I was isolated from them too. So I was just isolated from everything. And that was really, really hard. And it made me appreciate the, that that's kind of what's been getting me through is like to go to the park and, you know, the season just changed. So there's, um, a couple of birds that have like switched out, like the kinglets and the cedar wax wings have arrived and they're just like everywhere. And they're all like eating all the berries on all the trees. Um, and that's like, so, so I can't even describe how comforting that is to me. It's like that, that is the same as last year and the year before and the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's, you know, in some cases, like the timing is changing due to like climate change, but, um, it's this, yeah, I think it's this like familiarity, a sense of community, um, and a sense of like meaningfully inhabiting a place. Like I'm not floating on top of it, like yeah. as a sort of, um, static being but i'm like a, a a living breathing thing that's in a world with these other living breathing things and and we're here together yeah i mean that resonates so much i feel like especially during this pandemic i've become aware of how much a gift being able to have access to like a yard and immediate outdoor space has been knowing that especially in a place like miami because of the housing market here like that's not a typical thing i mean you're li- you're lucky if you have a balcony um, so definitely recognizing that, but really resonate with this idea that I, you know, for the majority of the pandemic, I was like, I'm actually fine. I like get to be outside. Birds are like always chirping a whole ass situation. There's like squirrels that are trying my dog. Like, you know, my neighbors have chickens. Like there's always so much happening. And as I continue to grow the garden beds, um, then there's like all these different like cycles of, of seasons and different plants that have sort of like harvested through. Um, I think for a while it was just hard to make the connection that, that, that I'm, that I feel so like to recognize that I'm like, oh, I'm being so comforted because I feel like a sense of role and a sort of duty and commitment to these, you know, beings around me, um, whether it's like watering or whether it's like, I don't know. I think the, the part where you even say like, oh, birds like memorize people's faces. I was like, that's why. Cause every time I come out to like get a video, they don't like fly out or like freak out. They're like, oh, she's here. <laughs> she's doing her thing. <laughs> and I was telling my partner, like, it's pretty wild that like I'm able to get like they, you know, they don't fly out. And, you know, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's probably related. Like they probably know and sense like, hmm, she's always here. She's low key. Like she's, she's cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's funny to like that we assume that, I mean, it really was like a, eye-opening for me like this idea that um like like other other animals like they also see you I mean it sounds silly right but it's like mm-hmm. the the sort of 
the the knee jerk way of looking where everything is like an object or a thing for your use, or it's an, an obstacle or it's a product or something like that. Um, it's in, in all of those cases, not really looking back at you, but it's like, of course, of course they're looking back at you. Like you're also an animal and you're like, in the case of birds, you're much bigger than them and they're going to pay attention to you. Um, and they also notice patterns just like you're noticing them being there. So it's, it's just kind of this, uh, it's, it's humbling. Yeah. I mean, there are times where I like look at my dog and I enter this spiral of like, I want to know what you know. How smart are you really? What are you trying to communicate to me? And I'll like watch YouTube videos on like dog intelligence. And at one point, I, I, you know, I started thinking of this idea like, we really do frame intelligence when it comes to other animals that are not ourselves, that are not humans really from like the perspective and the vantage point of us, right? Like what we deem as intelligence, what we deem as resourceful. Um, And the more I learn about even little creatures, right? Like bees, um, my, one of my good friends is a beekeeper and she was explaining to me that they literally create routes that they memorize to places that have a lot of pollinators. Like, like she was like, I assure you that those bees that like continue to visit you are the same ones because they're like, yo, this is a safe place that's resourceful for us and we're going to constantly come. And that sort of idea of like agency, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, that's very much so intelligence. It's very much so creativity and it's resilient, right? In a place that so many of our native plants continue to get decimated in the face of like constant development, be in the Everglades or on the shoreline. Um it just feels comforting. I, I don't know another term besides comforting. And sometimes when I get very overwhelmed with all the social issues that we have, I sometimes think I'm like, even if we're gone and we don't make it because of stubborn <laughs> stubborn practices and, and systems that are so grandiose, I think they will. I, I really believe that the majority of nature will figure its way of adapting and, and resisting. Yeah, there's a, a book that you might appreciate. Um, so it's by the author of The Genius of Birds, which was like my gateway birding book, um, Jennifer Ackerman. Um, but it's called The Bird Way. And mm. it's specifically about bird behavior. Um, and it's new. So it has lots of like extremely recent research in it. And um, and there's all these moments of like, it's sort of a paradox where you learn more about a species, but you can't explain why they do that. So like all of these sort of like superhuman, well, not superhuman, but these like unimaginable capabilities that um, that birds would have, like knowing when there's going to be a hurricane like a month in advance, like mm-hmm. and then and then in the next sentence, it's like no one knows how they can do that. Um, it's one one species of bird. But anyway, there's a part at the end um, where she mentions that there's a corvid researcher. So like, you know, crows, scrub jays, ravens um, who in a uh partially tongue-in-cheek like banner is speculating that um if humans are gone that there would be selective pressure on crows to become smarter um and that they would like take they would be like the next (laughs) the next big species like they would like take over um and i i wrote a review of this book for the atlantic and i was like there is like some comfort in imagining this like row world <laughs> devoid of humans <laughs> listen <laughs> the way that this shit is looking and headed i'm rooting i'm rooting for a lot of other beings before <laughs> <laughs> um 
Yeah, it's it's so fascinating and it's it's so beautiful. And I think, you know, I've read Braiding Sweetgrass earlier this this year and she talks about so many of these sort of indigenous understandings that I think for a lot of non-indigenous folks we're just like just figuring out, right? And I and and I think you know the, the point you made earlier around like ecologists and sort of like these naturalists like you know a lot of them being like white men um, with access and somehow the fact that the this is indigenous knowledge and indigenous practices that for so long have sustained so many of the systems that we even see today um, and that that's not included in the conversation is always really troubling um, so I it's interesting for me because I think it's challenging me to think of like this idea of like returning to the land, not just as like, oh, gardening is cute. I like composting and the bees and the birds, but really like what can we fight around land sovereignty and really like where is the solidarity for folks of color, oppressed people with indigenous folks, with black folks, like across across sectors. And I think that's really exciting, especially as an organizer. I'm like, mm, they're like we have more similar fights than we don't. Um, I think it's just making those connections and like deepening those relationships. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, something that I've been thinking a lot about, again, during the pandemic is just access even to outdoor space. I mean, you sort of mentioned it earlier, but um, I I have a balcony. Um, other than that, my apartment building doesn't have any sort of like outdoor space. So, and my balcony is never in the sun, which is really annoying. Um, so if I want to be outside, I have to be walking pretty much. Um, and so I started sort of like walking much more obsessively than I normally would. Um, and for where I am, if you walk uphill, you at some point find yourself in like an uncomfortably wealthy neighborhood. Um, and I remember having this really depressing moment where I, I turned the corner and I thought I had found a park. I was like, oh, a new park. It was someone's lawn. Um, yeah. and like. <laughs> Um, and so I, anyway, I was just thinking a lot about um, access to outdoor space. Like, um, I feel like um, this is a strange comparison, but I don't know if you've seen Modern Times, the Charlie Chaplin film. No. Um, okay, <laughs> I, it's probably my favorite film of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's like, you know, the famous scene of like Charlie Chaplin on the, uh, mm-hmm. the whatever, uh, in the factory. Anyway, there's a scene where um, he and his sort of companion um, are trying to like talk and they go and sit on someone's lawn. Um, And the lawn belongs to like this sort of uh, upper middle class looking couple. And the man goes off to work with his briefcase and the woman is like waving. And they're sort of like, oh, can you imagine if we had a life like that? And there's this like funny sort of like dream sequence about that. And then eventually they get kicked off the lawn by a cop. Um, and I like I keep thinking about that scene like I don't know it's like stuck in my head because it's like thinking about like you know like I feel like I've been walking around looking at like median strips like on in the road being like can I sit there like can we sit there um and then also just thinking about like the difference between you know like uh where I am and then like West Oakland which has like very little park space very you know fewer trees um poor air quality it's closer to the port like Um, and so like, even if, you know, you, if you're seeking out this, um, experience of like community with other forms of life, which I mean, I, I find to be very sustaining, it's harder to do there. Um, and there's much less space. So, um, that's something that I think, you know, I was trying to address a little bit at the end of my book, but I, I just became much, much more aware of now when it's like, 
what is your what's what's within walking distance of you becomes really important. Oh, yeah, that that's a part that has been really painful when it comes to also thinking about Miami, you know, that I think depending on what figure you look at, whether it's like new reports by the New York Times or the Miami Herald's like we're always placed um, among some of the like the fastest gentrifying cities in the country right now. You know, a new report came out. We have 30 billionaires in Miami and made us like the second most unequal city, like income wise. Um, you know, we just voted to like raise our minimum wage from eight dollars. So like that's that's like the the context in which we're operating. And and to your point, it, it makes me think of like, you know, the idea of food deserts a little bit more popular. Right. People are like, oh, yeah, if you can like walk and like immediately access like healthy local food, probably live in a food desert. But I think this this point that you're raising around like the decimating of public spaces and public outdoor spaces it's still so like it's not being discussed and in, in, with deep intention right because of course the people it impacts are folks that are living public housing or in poor communities or they're already dealing with you know toxicity in the waters or like you know really really serious issues um but it's it's so real. I mean, I I think you know. I know towards the end of the book, you you touch on it, and I feel like for me, if we're not able to articulate the connections between capitalism commodifying everything, including right like medians, like shit, is this does this belong to someone? Like, am I okay to just lay here and maybe read a book? You know, I mean, they have literally privatized all of our public goods, and the idea that parks feel like quite literally a luxury right like in Miami the the neighborhoods with parks are the ones that have money um so you have to like either bike over or drive over to their neighborhoods which you know the there's so many implications of that right if you're a person in a black body a dark-skinned black person like you're already gonna be faced with you know white people walking their dogs on the water being like who's this person and why and we've seen all egregious versions of that, that I'm curious for you, like beyond kind of, you know, since the book has been out and now that you're working on a new book, are there some key reflections, right, that might be tied to this like militarization of our communities, even including our outdoor spaces, including our green spaces, including what should belong to the public? Yeah, um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, so the, the book I'm writing is about time. Uh, it is, I will say it now, it is not a time management book. <laughs> so no one, no one has to have that experience of disappointment. Um, although it is tentatively titled Saving Time, um, but it's not time management. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's about a lot of different things, but there was one sort of chapter where I wanted to talk about different ways that leisure time has been talked about um, historically and, and what we sort of have thought leisure is for. Um, and one of really interesting sort of area of research that I'm, I'm excited about um, that my cousin brought to my attention um, is um, she, so she's done a lot of work with the, like the park service. Um, and she was kind of pointing me in the direction of like all of this writing about like who, who are parks for? Um, of course, that would also include like museums or like these other things that would be considered leisure spaces. Um, not to mention the sort of like really complicated history of like national parks um, yes. being sort of taken away from indigenous communities. Um, and, and so, you know, the sort of strange legacy of someone like John Muir, who is like, right. Like seeing this like per quote, quote unquote, pristine wilderness, um, 
with like no one, ideally no one in it. Um, and so, you know, I, at that, the, the way I sort of structured the book is that I'm kind of like trying to pry open the space, like talking about like the history of how time, time is, has been measured as money and then how we internalize that. And then this leisure part kind of comes in the middle where it's like, okay, well, if you can, even if you can imagine like driving a wedge in with something like leisure time, and let's say we even had something institutionalized, like, like we had like, I don't know, a four day work week or some kind of holiday or something like that. And, and let's say you even built more parks, like you did all of these things, right? Like there would still be so much more work to do to make those spaces inclusive, um, like truly inclusive, not like lip service inclusive. Um, and so that's something that I'm really excited to, to look more into. And I'm so lucky that my, my cousin basically studied this. So um, she's like giving me the syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Please send me any, any work by your cousin. I have become like very fascinated by this topic. Um, I guess maybe fascinated is not the best word. It's, um, you know, I have a white partner. And for me growing up, the idea of like camping and the great outdoors and these national parks were something that my family was like, fuck no. Um, <laughs> they, if, you know, for them, it's like a reverting back. Like why? Like it's it's transgressive. It's like, why would we do that? Um, and obviously, for lack of a better term, white folks in this country love that shit. They love camping. They, they do all the stuff, right? Um, and once we started traveling together to national parks, you know, some really popular ones and smaller ones, obviously the first thing that came to mind, I was like, wow, this is a very racialized space. Um, I've even had issues. Like I had an issue recently where I was wearing a bathing suit and like these natural springs. And like, I had this like white ranger, like kick me out. It was like all these things. Um, and you know, there's so many, now I've been able to go to national parks, um, really all over the country. And this is even void of like my understanding of like indigenous sovereignty and displacement, but immediately understanding these are super racialized spaces. And I think to your point, it's, you know, I know there's like these, like, di- like the, the NPS is like diversity efforts. Um, but there's no real conversation as to like, why is it that certain folks do not feel safe or have no inclination or no intention in being in the spaces in the first hand. And there's legacies of slavery, of Jim Crow, um, still the current police state crisis that we're under, um, you know, and, and and it's it's so frustrating, right? Because when I think of all the amazing places I've been able to visit, right, whether we're talking about Yellowstone or Zion and, you know, all the amazing waterfalls that we have and all these incredible spaces that really, like, offer you that leisure space and sort of, like, force you to disconnect from the attention economy, or at least you can try. It's mostly white faces that that are, and white bodies that are sort of there, and, and that feels really frustrating because I think in many ways the folks that need it the most and who are in so many ways like deserving of these spaces of rest, of leisure, are just simply will not have access to it, right? So whether we're talking about like immediate neighborhood locale, like just access to parks, all the way up to like national parks and and who gets to like kayak safely and who gets to, you know, it, it's always such a situation. There's such um not just racialized spaces, but they're so um policed. They're so policed. Even if there isn't like the explicit sense of a police presence, at least when I'm in those spaces, I feel like this is a police space. Be very super mindful around like 
your volume. You don't want to put music to loud. Like, there's just so many ways in which I realize, like, I am policing myself because, you know, we are in the space we are in. And it feels unfair, right? Because it's like, I'm in front of a lake overlooking, like, a glacier mountain. I should be able to just chill out for real. Like, yeah. really, really, like, let my shoulders drop. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fundamental right. Um, like, and I, the other thing that's coming to mind is, uh, especially lately, you know, I'm in California. Um, the urban rural divide is real here. Um, and uh, I, on that trip, I actually mentioned in the book that the trip that I went on to sort of see where Oakland's drinking water comes from, um, you know, I had to go basically through the Sierra foothills into the mountains. I was alone on that trip. Um, and I, you know, it, <laughs> I got, I, I actually lost my gas cap on my car because I was getting gas and there were like all these like Trump signs everywhere and like blue lives matter. And there was like this guy, I remember there was this large man wearing like army fatigues next to like a Hummer or something. And he was just like staring at me. And, um, and I was like so freaked out that I drove away without putting my gas cap back on my car. Like that's how I lost it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's just like, you know, it becomes politically hostile, like pretty, pretty quickly. And, um, and I, and I, you know, like in that situation, you know, I, I'm a woman, I'm alone, you know, and I was like, I just remember, like, I realized I had sort of like gone all the way there without thinking about that, like thinking about like safety. And, um, and so I think that that's only, I think that's, I mean, I just remember reading about that. Um, there's like an interracial couple that tried to go camping, like up, I think it was in Washington, that like they stopped in town and like people in the town thought they were Antifa because they looked, I don't know, they looked different. Um, and they like, and they're camping with their kid. And then they, and then like the people of the town, like tr basically trapped them in their campsite with like logs. And then some students from the town had to, I could, I'm sorry, I may be messing up the story, but basically I remember reading that story and being like, like that's always been the case for a lot of folks. Um, but now it just feels very extreme. Um, and like, the, and for me, the definition of leisure, I have a very wide definition of leisure. For me, it's absence of fear. Like if it's a time mm -hmm. that is absent of fear, whether that's fear of not doing enough or not being productive enough, um, but also fear of being harassed um, or just like fear, fear for one's safety. Like it has to be completely absent of fear like if you think about the times in your life that you would describe as leisure it's like you're either um alone somewhere where you feel safe and like you know looking around at like <laughs> trees or whatever you want to like just even like basically anything right like playing a game um or you're with friends but the point is that you're like you're not watching the clock um you have sort of already arrived at your there's no goal you're just there like if you're there you've you're done <laughs> and it's um, and you're just enjoying yourself. Um, and it's become very clear to me that there are oh, how many barriers there are to having that experience anywhere um, for a lot of folks. So, Yeah. And what's what's wild about it is like when you when you break it down, it's a, it's a pretty simple request. Right. Like we're not we're not even getting to like the big things. Right. We're just like just want to chill in the most sense <laughs> yeah. like that's it uh you know we haven't even got into like fuck privatizing things we ain't talking about like free food like we ain't talking about free housing like this is very fundamental and even then there's all these systemic things that are just constantly blocking it um 
you know, I am curious. I think so much of your book, How to Do Nothing, is slowly working its way to the culmination of of what you offer towards the end of um, manifesting dismantling, which I love the phrasing. I absolutely, I was like, ding, my organizer brain was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about (laughs) what this, yeah, let's add like nuance and complication to that beyond just the chapter. Like, what does that mean for you as a practice? What what are you trying to offer folks to consider? Yeah, um, I'm glad that it was uh, that it, it it set that off for you. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I the the term manifest dismantling was supposed to be opposed to manifest destiny. So you know, I talk about that painting, uh, the 19th century painting called Manifest Destiny, where it's like this enormous white white robe, also white robed woman kind of like floating over the U S with like the forces of technology behind her. And then, um, many forms of life just like fleeing in front of her. It's like, it's, it's honestly like a morbidly fascinating painting. Um, but it very, I think it very much encapsulates the sort of philosophy of, of manifest destiny, um, which I, you know, I sort of describe as like facing forward blindly, um, mm-hmm. and I think that my, my ending the book specifically with manifest dismantling, which is really, I mean, I would look at even like habitat restoration as kind of like a metaphorical model for that. Um, it comes from my annoyance with, I, and this could be a very, um, growing up in Silicon Valley thing. Um, this kind of really shallow and narrow version of not only productivity, but progress, um, yes. And this also, my friend was calling it um, technological solutionism the other day. Uh, so I will just borrow that term from her. Um, uh, this, yeah, and this sort of complete inattentiveness, not only to the past, but like to all, to everything that already, like in that painting, right? Like the existing communities, also the existing knowledge, right? Which like, we're, I mean, just look at California, right? We, we're now having to like turn around and be like, oh, you want to manage wildfires? Like, turns out there's an, an incredibly, like, uh, developed body of knowledge around that um, that belongs to the people who lived here and, and live here. And they still, they're like, yeah, we have it, you know? So um, it's like, that's, that's probably an example of manifest dismantling where it's like, okay, you have to sort of re- reorient your, the way you think about what progress is to not be this kind of like forward arrow, but more kind of like, okay, let me just actually stop, you know, like just pause. And then I'm going to like look around and then I'm going to look around some more um, and like have the humility to, to like seek that context and then find a way to be in support of, of those networks that already exist and have existed in order to do this work of like repair and restoration Mm -hmm. Um, and like that, if it's, if that sounds backwards, it's only within that kind of like forwards, backwards linear, you know, like I, I don't describe it as going forward because like, I don't, I don't want to use that kind of like access access. Um, and I think that manifest is mentally like in the book, I'm sort of talking about it on, um, a community level. Right. Um, but, uh, I think it can also happen on an individual level. I think like anytime you are unlearning something or like unlearning a bias or you're like trying to unlearn, you know, like sort of capitalist relationship to your own thoughts or yourself, um, that also counts to me as manifested 
manifest dismantling, which I, again, I would, I don't want to use the word progress, but I think that that is a form of growth, um, a, a positive thing, right? Um, that just doesn't, it's not additive. You're not like adding skills to your life or like adding, like adding value. It's like, you know, you're actually like fundamentally changing the structure of something and oftentimes having to like break things down in order, you know, for things to grow. So like my, my favorite example, which I, I think I end the book there is this, um, amazing, amazing park in West Oakland near the port called middle, middle Harbor shoreline park. Um, and it used to be, um, a Naval supply depot. Um, and it was basically acquired by the port and turned into a park. Um, and they, they, it had been dredged. So it was basically like, you know, just what you would expect with the port. So they had to rebuild the beach that sort of would have originally been there. And now it's like, I mean, just like crazy amounts of shorebirds. Um, like the shorebirds love it. <laughs> They're all over the place. Um, and it's, um, and then it has a tower that's dedicated to this guy that was very sort of instrumental in, um, you know, environmental, bringing awareness of environmental racism um, uh, to Oakland. So it's like, it just has like everything. It, it's like, a, it itself is a monument, but when you look at it, it's something that's been torn down and then it's been restored in some ways, but it's not that thing from the past. It's something new. Um, and it's, mm. it created the conditions for, for flourishing and also for, for people to go there and experience leisure. Um, and I really love it because you can, you know, not only see the birds, but you can like, <laughs> you can see the skyline of San Francisco. I think I mentioned like the Salesforce tower in it, where it's like, I'm not there. Like this sort of <laughs> somehow exists in opposition to that. Right. Um, yeah. like this, I'm in this sort of like quiet place that is being reclaimed in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a beautiful anecdote. Um, it gives me hope. And I also appreciate you sort of naming <laughs> those ideas around um, tech. I'm sure also being near Silicon Valley and, and seeing what it's done to like your immediate community has been really difficult. Um, I feel like I always fight with my friends that are in STEM or tech or adjacent. And yeah, as a community organizer, you know, I'm I'm very resistant of the idea that like an app or like an algorithm or like some startup in Silicon Valley or wherever, right? Because they're everywhere now, um, is it's gonna actually address these issues. But I really have a hard time thinking of a sector that gets the sort of rapport of of being as innovative, as creative, and as like almost inherently goodwilled, you know, the idea that even someone like Elon Musk <laughs> or Jeff Bezos are still given like some credit. It's just I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Um, so yeah, I, I think tech actually, and especially living under like surveillance capitalism and, and being more analytical about what interests tech as a sector more broadly serves you know, I, I, I'm super resistant. I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying, you know, they're really side with the enemies if, if you really break it down. Um, but that's not like the cultural understanding we have. People really respect those professions, really respect these startups, respect these brands and companies. And sometimes it's like you're, you know, you're going against the rub that everyone's like, no, no, we just, we do need to invest more in technology. I'm like, okay, well, what does that actually mean? And, you know, I think sometimes in, in the work that I do it, we always ask like for the sake of what and for the benefit of who? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, always a really good question to apply to any technology. Um, 
like optimizing for what too, right? It's like, are you going to make a more efficient coal plant? Like, Mm -hmm. is that like, well, that's also like more efficiently destroying the planet. Um, And uh, like, I remember having this um, like sort of related to manifest, manifest dismantling. I remember having a conversation with my friend about like self-driving cars and we were like, man, like self-driving cars, like probably super complicated to engineer, like so much like technical, technical knowledge going into that. We're like, but what if we already had the answer? And the answer was trains. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, what if the ant like what if it's, you know, we already we already encountered that. Um and um I really want to recommend a book if you maybe you've come across it already by Wendy Liu, um, that came out earlier this year called Abolish Silicon Valley. Um I'll get behind that. <laughs> yeah. The subtitles, I think, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism. Yeah. And um anyway, she makes this case um really nicely. The sort of like to what end and and her story is super fascinating because she's kind of like a former insider it's very like i saw the light kind of narrative um but really um really it's a page turner i really recommend it um and it like i said it's just a really great example of like technology in itself you know uh there's i think um something that i've been talking to my students a lot uh, about this quarter because i have a few of them that are really interested in it. it's like um technology and like disability design um and you know uh these you know these examples of technology where it's it really is like augmenting something or allowing you to do something right in an artistic sense like we talk about um i don't know if you know this artist pamela z um okay just after this go and look up pamela z (laughs) um but she has you know uh i mean you want to talk about like techno utopia like she has this kind of um, setup that she like wears and then she uses Max MSP and she's also a, a vocalist and she kind of u- and has like a looper. Basically she creates this environment where her her gestures are manipulating the her voice that she's recorded. Yeah. And it's like incredibly, like it's beautiful, haunting, so embodied too. Um, and like that, that to me, like that is a really beautiful illustration of like a sort of collaborative relationship with some form of technology um, that is allowing something that's like greater than some of its parts, but it's clear that it's being used to a specific end, you know? And then there's like, you can, I don't know, just as easily imagine technology being used to really, as we're surrounded with examples of um, (laughs) just like blatantly awful. I mean, there's also um, that, I'm blanking on the name, but there's that book that Logic just put out that's like anonymous um, inter- uh, anonymous interviews with tech workers mm. um, from the Valley. I think it's called Voices from the Valley. Um, and there's like so many sort of moments where someone in an interview is like, yeah, I, I was asked to engineer things that are bad for people. Like, end of story. <laughs> like, it's very cut and dried. So, yeah. Yeah, as always, like complicating and adding nuance, you know, my best friend, she is starting a, a co-op startup, which is already like, mm, um, and getting pushback, of course. And um, her work is really like using 3D printing to sort of mimic the cells of certain joints, especially to support folks that are dealing with all um arthritis um so i'm like yeah there are there are the examples right and those are the folks that i'm like yes those are the projects that like community should be involved in and should be supporting but unfortunately 
you know, that ain't the Tesla, that ain't the Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, that's not what we're talking about. Um, And I think, yeah, there is a commitment to sort of lift up the contradictions. Um, And and I think go beyond just like diversifying liberal efforts. Like, oh, we just need like more black engineers. Oh, we just like need more women CEOs. And, you know, we've seen that, right? Like this is the most sort of diverse capitalism we've ever had yet. And we're not any closer to liberation because of those of those process, in my opinion. but um, I'm really excited that the next project you're working on is talking about time and leisure. And I'm sure that it's going to be a lot of revelations for a lot of us. Um, I won't ask when it will be done. I see all the post-it notes <laughs> behind you. <laughs> I won't ask. Um, but I am curious, you know, we just, w- the reason why I sort of chose your book for um, our book club this month wasn't just because I loved it, which I did. But also recognizing that the time timeliness of it, like dropping it as the November pick after an election where we were unsure how long election results were going to take, you know, super polarized, the largest voter turnout ever, like all these things, um, recognizing we were potentially and might potentially still be preparing for like an electoral coup. And I was like, okay, I think Jenny's book is actually very on the nose. I think we need to not operate just from a form like a place of urgency and like damage control at every single moment, um, knowing that it's just not sustainable. Um, and how can we really like take the time to slow down and sort of assess like what is really what are really like the sober conditions we're in and how do we need to move slowly for long term, um, which I think was one of the many things your book reminded me of, like slow down again, not for the sake of just like, oh, how to do nothing, but really because we have a responsibility to one another. And it is so hard to like fulfill our commitments to our communities, our relationships, and like just this, the environments around us when we're always just operating like in such a frenzy, right? Um, But I'm curious, what's bringing you, what's keeping you in the space of optimism these days? Uh, it's definitely a challenge. Um, <laughs> I, um, I have found it, I don't know what, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe grounding. Um, I've been reading a lot of history, um, and I have found that to be, you know, it's getting me through this moment and it's also useful. Um, so I just read, uh, there is power in a union, which is like that really long, um, uh, history of labor in the U.S. Also Paige Turner, surprisingly, um, (laughs) full of like really um, like very memorable like people and stories. Um, And I've I've just been having to do a lot of historical research for the book as well. Um, And, uh, you know, like the history of prisons. Um, Oh, I'm reading Discipline and Punish right now. That doesn't sound fun, but I love that book. Um, (laughs) But necessary, necessary. and I think the reason that, that these things feel grounding is that they, because they are applicable to the present, like they help me see things about the present, but they're not in the present. Um, and so they're not part of that cycle, right? They're not part of like the, the Twitter trends cycle. <laughs> um, and yet like reading these things, when I do see things in the news, I have more context. I'm like, oh, that, that is an outgrowth of this thing that started happening <laughs> way, like a really, really long time ago. Um, and I think also it gives me hope because you see these, um, you know, these moments of resistance, like throughout history, 
Um, even things like, you know, the fact that people have always been not only resistant, but like funny. Like we forget that like people in the, you know, 18th century were funny. Um, and there's like, or I was reading the, um, the like basically a publication or like a, a, I don't know, flyer that was put out by the 10 hour movement um, in the US uh, for like the 10 hour work day. And it's really sarcastic. Like, it's really funny. It like made me laugh. Um, and it's like just seeing these like moments of just like humanity and like, um, and refusal um, mm. has, you know, it's reminded me not only of that sort of like ongoing impulse, but also like at, at every moment in history, things were undecided. Therefore, it gives you a very different attitude towards the present because if you just live in this kind of small, um, like bubble of urgency, uh, even though that is driven by like hope and desire for change, like I think um, I I get really fatalistic like really quickly if I if I'm only in that, you know. And then you also forget about the importance of like joy, and um, as just in and of itself, like the the experience of joy, um, and so like just seeing these moments of kind of indeterminacy in the past, it gives me, it makes the future seem a lot more wide open than it would otherwise, I think. Um, so that's, that's been really helpful. And then the other thing that's been really helping me is Filipino disco, <laughs> I have to say. And that. <laughs> um, because I just have been going down a Filipino disco wormhole and then like texting my mom and being like, what does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> That is beautiful. I feel like I don't know if you follow Dust to Digital on Instagram. It's this account that like really just recounts like really old archives of like music all over the world. So it's like videos from like the 40s and stuff. And and because it's international, um, yeah, I'm I'm like I pretty I'm pretty sure I just saw like some like Filipino, um, like old funky groove. I was like, yes, <laughs> um, yeah, and. Yes, a reminder, we've always been in resistance. We've always found ways to adapt, even in the most apocalyptic or dire of times for so many communities, right? Communities have been entirely displaced of their land. Folks have been kidnapped from their continent and the stories go on and on and we're still here and we're still trying to figure it out. And I really appreciate you sharing kind of like what are the practices that are keeping you afloat or maybe a little bit more than afloat these days i'm a gemini so i, I do well, find me too. yes i was gonna say i'm like i feel like we we love that shit like that was such a gemini response because I, I it does the same for me i was watching a film on like the sandinista movement in nicaragua and yeah it's complicated right it's never left in you know super binary it's like people try to fight for really revolutionary ideals and we are complicated people with a lot of internal and external pressures that impact how we operate and yeah it's not like there's a relief in seeing the past failures but it's a reminder that we exist in those legacies and that it it's not such an easy thing to be like oh we're gonna get to abolition tomorrow oh we're gonna end end this you know, end capitalism as we know it, global capitalism next year, you know, under Biden-Harris, like none of those things are going to happen. <laughs> and yeah, I think the reminders of, of that and, and kind of the uphill work that we're involved in is, is in a strange way comforting. I'm like, I will make mistakes because we're just in the legacy of experimenting and making mistakes and that that's okay. Um, 
really sort of relieves me of so much pressure of like having super sophisticated answers for everything from how are we going to pay for that or how are you going to get everyone on board for that? You know, how are we going to divest from that? Whatever it might be, just knowing that we don't always have to have eloquent answers and sometimes like longing is enough. Um, but yeah, I appreciate that so much. I appreciate you being on the show. Um, I am so excited for the next book. Uh, I don't know how long the process will take. It seems like a very extensive process. Um, but ironically, I will share already a lot of people have told me you're writing a new book. Um, you know, uh, folks on, on Instagram. So it, yeah. it is out there. Folks are excited. Um, but do take your time. I think the that's one of the reminders of the new book, too. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I was given way, way, way more time to write this book than the last one. I wrote How to Do Nothing in four months. Um, however, I will say <laughs> that those were not four normal months. That was for I teach. So I have summer off. So not really, you know, just four Still months four of only months. doing that, but it was extremely intense. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely taking my time with this one. Um, and uh, and actually now ironically, I'm having the problem of like too much context. Like I, <laughs> I like, I, I keep researching, like researching and researching. I'm like, okay, no, I have to actually write something, but I could just keep going down that path. So um, at some point I will rein it in and there, there will be a book. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time and being in conversation. Um, your work is super valuable and I think it challenges us to reconsider what, what we even think of valuable um, beyond just like the capitalist metrics. Um, so I, I'm really grateful for that. I'm really grateful for your work. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you.